Welcome to the Food Foundation podcast, the award-winning voice of the charity which campaigns for better access to healthy food for every child in the UK. I'm Hugh Fernley-Whittingstall, writer and broadcaster and food campaigner. And this week, we're looking at how to make a case for policy change. These are foods with high profit margins. So from a food industry perspective, these are good foods. From a human perspective, they're a disaster. Charities like the Food Foundation try to find solutions to the growing challenges facing the UK food system and present them to government and the private sector. But the work has to have impact, otherwise, well, what's the point? As someone who's been banging the drum for 30 years or more for better access for everyone to seasonally, ethically produced food, both for our own health and that of the planet, I'm really interested in how we can change the food narrative in the UK. What does it take to actually shift the story around food poverty, unequal access to good food and obesity? Well, one of the Food Foundation strategies is to work closely with citizens who are experiencing the issues firsthand. Its young food ambassadors bring their lived experience into the heart of its campaigns they can tell the rest of us how it is to actually live with the stigma of free school meals and what it feels like when you just don't know where your next meal is coming from. For me, growing up, especially during holidays, I'd look in the fridge, look in the cupboards, OK, there's nothing to eat, what can I do? Go to bed. You just go to bed hungry, you sleep it away. And because I'm heavily into sports, I'm doing sports therapy at university, um, it was always just like, do I have enough energy to go and play sport? We got like, when I was at school, we had like a certain amount that we could spend a day. But it was always the healthier food that was more expensive than the non-healthy food. Eating bad food, you know, whether it's burgers, chips, takeout. Um, I slowly started to realise that it was taking a toll on my mental health, uh, feeling insecure about myself. Um, and definitely like just the laziness, like before when I was eating healthier food. I had so much energy, I could go about my old day. Um, after that, it was downhill. Janai, Tyler, Rabia, just some of the young food ambassadors working with the Food Foundation to tell the stories of food insecurity. It's powerful stuff. Ellen Dezout, a consultant for the Food Foundation, says it's how you tell the story that matters. For us, it's really important that when we are trying to bring an issue and a campaign to policymakers' attention, that we're not just coming with data, with hard facts, with what's going on in kind of real statistical terms. We are really bringing the experiences of people to policymakers to really connect with them on a different level, to explain both with the heart and the head why we need to see action on these issues. Um, and I think, you know, data can alienate people on its own, but data with stories and with real sense of what's going on in the ground on, in communities across this country really brings this issue to life and we hope really empowers people and gives them the imperative to take action. We might think that telling MPs and NGOs about food poverty, even if we're appealing to their hearts and minds, is really just about telling the same old story. But as Ellen says, storytelling has been compelling humans since the beginning of time. As human beings, we all connect with each other through stories. 
And that's how it has been um, through history from the early days. You know, we heard a story, you pass it on, you tell it to someone else. And we can't remember the facts and the stats and the data. But don't we just remember those really powerful stories that we hear and that we see? And it's quite easy to ignore those stories or to not believe that they exist when we're just faced with hard data. But when we hear the power and the dignity, it it connects on a different level. And we'll hear that story. And like they did in the caveman days, we'll pass that on. And that story will get passed on and passed on. And it's that that we'll hear being retold in Parliament, maybe alongside the data, but it's the story that will have connected with somebody and made them take further action. It's the story of people's reality that hits hard. But do some stories hit harder than others? She used to put it on like a slow cooker oh, every day. Yeah. Right. So while she was at work, she got work nine till she finished at five, but she didn't get on to about six. Right. Marcus Rashford and Food Foundation Ambassador Dame Emma Thompson. But some days I'd have training late. Yeah. So literally I'd, I'd be eating cereal all day. And then when she'd get back from work, we'd have to go catch two buses straight to training. And then two buses back, and then it's like 11 o'clock. So she's got work at 8 in the morning, and she's got to get me ready for school. And so some, some days she just, she, I'd understand that, like, oh, you can't cook on a Thursday, was my late day training. Right. So she can't cook on Thursdays. I used to go to breakfast club at like half seven, mm. um, and then I'd just be at school all day, and then go to my friend's house for a little bit after school, then go home get changed, then I'd just be out playing until she she got home. And Mm. and that was just my daily routine, really. The Food Foundation led the End Child Food Poverty Coalition, a group of more than 30 third sector organisations supporting the call that Marcus Rashford made back in 2020 for the government to improve the diets and food access of children in low-income families. And it's had some pretty big successes. So far, the government has extended the holiday activity and food programme to all areas in England to children on free school meals in 2021 and increased the value of Healthy Start vouchers to £4.25. And earlier this year, London Mayor Sadiq Khan announced that every London primary school pupil would get free school meals next academic year. Ellen Dazout again. Yeah, I mean, we've seen the impact of it in lots of other work that the Food Foundation has done over the years, both um, our own campaigns and those we've done with our partners. Um, Many people will be familiar with the campaign that the Food Foundation got involved with alongside Marcus Rashford around free school meals. And if you look at what happened there, it was the power of his story, of his lived experience of his childhood and being on free school meals that made his voice so authentic and his story so powerful. Uh, And I'm confident that having that true, authentic voice front and centre made that campaign as successful as it was. The front line of food poverty is also where you'll find people like Dr Ewan Hamnett, a GP who's been working in Birmingham for nearly 30 years. The Food Foundation recently hosted an event in Parliament highlighting the impact of rising food costs partnered with which the aim was to share the latest data on the cost of living crisis, real-life stories and solutions to the challenges millions of people face in accessing affordable, nutritious food. Dr Hamlet's story was heard by an audience of parliamentarians, retailers, 
NGOs, civil servants, academics and citizens who attended the event. It was a sobering reminder of the plight of families struggling to feed their children as a result of rising food prices. Cost of living crisis. This isn't just some little blip. We hand out medication for high blood pressure, diabetes, raised cholesterol, refer people to bariatric surgery, weight management clinics. And people are just rearranging deck chairs. They're not actually asking, why is that? Why is this combination of diabetes, cancers, arthritis, mental health problems, where's that come from? It's tempting to say, oh, you've got this because of something that you did. But the you did element is really influenced by people's environment. If you have very little money, you will take what's cheap. What's cheap is often empty calories, stuff that is just not good for you. Crisps, snacks are high-margin goods. So for that shop, that's what they'll sell you. These are foods with high profit margins. So from a food industry perspective, these are good foods. From a human perspective, they're a disaster. These habits are really hard to break. And if these habits are cheap and you're poor, then there's no lever to break those things. The cost of this fall on government. It's a false economy. So not to invest in people's lives early on is crazy because you will have the health and social care costs later on in life. Sheila Dillon, presenter of Radio 4's The Food Programme, has been telling stories about food politics and poverty for over 20 years. She opened the event at Parliament and witnessed MPs, retailers and NGOs all silenced by the power of Dr Hamlet's testimony. I think more and more NGOs and charities ought to use film, video, to make real, to move ideas about poverty away from abstraction into lived reality. The trouble is, it's against a background now, almost of acceptance of poverty, because after all, food poverty is just, you know, it's a subset of poverty. You can't afford to buy food because you're poor. Why are people poor? That's the big question. Inequality is the big issue. You know, there's a lot of talk, you know, in these post-Brexit years of how Britain is going to be great and how we're going to rebuild the research and development and our manufacturing potential and our trading position. But we seem to have discounted what children from working class backgrounds can add to this new Great Britain. Can films like that make a difference? Can we get a proper conversation started about the changes we need to make? I don't know. Sophia Parent, head of local action at Sustain, says the power of the press can help move mountains. Sustain is part of a coalition of charities and NGOs, including the Food Foundation, who wrote an open letter to government last year about the inadequacies of the Healthy Start programme. She explained how it led to government taking action. So Healthy Start is a government-run scheme. Um, It gives money uh, to eligible families with children under four and pregnant women uh, to buy fruit, vegetables and milk. And uh, until the end of 2021, this was done via a paper application form and uh, paper vouchers. But at the end of that year, it transitioned to 
a prepaid digital card and a digital application form. Now, this is a brilliant scheme. Uh, we really support it. It provides those who most need a nutritional safety net. Um, but we realized uh, very early in 2022 that there were serious issues with this digitization, which was uh, keeping a lot of people in need out of the scheme unnecessarily. So we heard from our local networks of um, frontline workers that um, were working with these families to get them on the on the Healthy Start payments, that the digitization was just not happening so there were tens of thousands of people locked out of, of this scheme. And remember, this uh, was 2022, coming out of COVID, but starting the, the, you know, it was the start of the cost of living with um, um, food price inflation. So it was at the moment when these families needed these payments the most, and tens of thousands of them couldn't get on the benefit and um, were uh, experiencing delays of weeks, months to, to get on these payments. Um, so hearing from our networks, we were receiving reports every day, several reports a day, that people couldn't get on the scheme. Their application was being rejected online. So um, what we did then was to write an open letter to government with the Food Foundation and with the support of uh, more than a hundred different councils and frontline organizations outlining exactly what the, what was happening on the ground. And at the time, we briefed uh, journalists, we briefed uh, money-saving experts, and we got coverage in places like the Grocer, the Mirror, then generated so much public uh, attention and support. How did it work? Did that press and public attention actually make a difference? We got a meeting with the head of healthy food uh, schemes at the Department of Health and Social Care and meetings with the NHS Business Service Authority who runs the scheme um, so they could hear about these, these problems that were happening on the ground. Shortly after, we got an official response from the, the then minister, Maggie Throop, to some of our questions and she issued uh, an update so um, we got some of those glitches in the online application system fixed. Uh, lots of people just couldn't get support um, in the phone line that was uh, supposed to help them to get on with their application and receive the payments. So a new phone line was added just for those who wanted to have information about the balance on their account or activate their card. So this improved access uh, to the phone lines for people. And uh, we also got figures for uptake uh, published because there were no figures to tell us how the digitization was happening. Was the government embarrassed into action? Well, maybe. That doesn't mean that the Healthy Start uptake is sorted. Far from it. And you can read the work the Food Foundation continues to do by clicking on the show notes. But it did throw a spanner in what Dolly Tice, policy consultant at Dolitics, describes as an obesity policy merry-go-round. 
So the government tends to um, repeat the policy arse over numerous years and under different governments. So even uh, governments of different parties will propose the same or very similar types of policies. And that's largely because policies are proposed in a way that's not likely for them to be implemented. And we see that time and time again that, you know, hundreds, literally hundreds of policies have not been implemented. And we're experiencing that right now with the current government um, delaying or scrapping policies that were almost through or even some of them had gone through the legislative process um, or some had been funded and were actively in uh, implementation phase and then stopped. So we have this sort of nightmare um, lack of implementation and lack of long-term implementation. And then alongside it, there are lots of barriers to why um, governments feel uncomfortable with seeing policies through. And that can be linked to ideological reasons, uh, not feeling like the government has a role uh, in intervening, particularly around um, food and, and the sort of food environment and what people have available around them. And then there are all sorts of other issues of low prioritization. Um, the fear of accusations of nanny statism, uh, which tends to be a very political problem. So that's a kind of fear largely from colleagues um, and, you know, fellow parliamentarians, for example, or the media headlines, rather than the public. And they may use, you may see it that, you know, politicians will say, oh, the p- people don't want, you know, government telling them what, what they do, can and cannot eat. And actually, we know from public polling that it's incredibly popular. So some of these barriers are actually much more political than they are a kind of wider public issue. Surely the policy development process is more robust than that. Go on, Dolly, give us some examples. In the last, um, coming up to 10 years now, we've had one policy on the restriction of unhealthy adverts on TV online, um, and that is the 9pm watershed. And that was first seriously considered under David Cameron when he uh, had just won the uh, election in 2015, had a majority government and went really big on tackling childhood obesity, put it really at the top of his priority list, which again is quite unusual for governments to put this issue at the very top. And um, and so seriously considered it, uh, wasn't able to see it through because he ended up resigning due to the uh, EU uh, referendum vote, passed on the strategy to Theresa May, who scrapped it immediately, only two years later to bring it back and realise that that was actually a, a very likely to be effective policy. Uh, again, didn't see it through because she then left. Uh, Boris Johnson came in. He then tried to scrap it only to bring it back when he realised that obesity was actually a really important issue. And now another two prime ministers later, and we still have just had the government decide to delay it even further. So it had gone through the legislative process, was ready to be put into uh, action. Uh, and then they decided to delay it for another two years. And if it does come in when they've on the delay date, which is now 2025, it will have been 10 years since the government first seriously considered it. And that's just on one policy. And we know that this is an issue that requires multiple policies across multiple sectors in different areas. So the idea that it takes 10 years, maybe, and we don't know if that's guaranteed for one policy, then goodness knows on on all the others. The Food Foundation's strategy of combining hard facts with appealing to hearts and minds does get through to MPs and their decision-making. But do Dolly's findings mean that the political merry-go-round will always stop short of any real and lasting change? It's a really interesting question about whether it's, you know, there's any point to sort of campaigning and can you ever make a difference and can you ever effectively influence the policy process? And despite my research being so um, sort of cynical in a way of looking at the decades of failed 
policy in this space, I am actually really optimistic and hopeful. And that's because um, the other side of my PhD research looked at how to influence the government policy process. And I came across the wealth of uh, academic literature that looks at how the policy process works, uh, what factors are most likely to influence it, and also on the uh, role of policy entrepreneurs. So these are exceptional policy actors. They're exceptional in the sense of expending more resource than you would otherwise expect. And they tend to be much more influential than your other type of actors. And they don't have to be individuals. They can be groups of people. They could be an organization. They could be an institution. Um, and if you look at the policy entrepreneur li literature and you look at the policy process literature, there's lots of evidence of what has been most effective in influencing policies globally in this space. And it's very rare that you actually see campaign groups applying that sort of academic literature of what works in a really systematic strategic way. And that's what I am now working on. And um, the sort of big success stories of what has happened in the UK, for example, the soft drinks industry levy, you actually see basically those sorts of campaign techniques ticking almost every box of the policy entrepreneur literature of what's likely to be effective. So absolutely, policy entrepreneurs can be celebrities like you, Hugh, and um, and colleagues that you'll know of, of Jamie Oliver and others like that, who can absolutely leverage their media platforms to influence the policy process really effectively. And you have done that with your Fish Fight campaign and Chicken Out campaign and Jamie on uh, raising awareness around child health and childhood obesity among the government, which has literally led to policy changes, as you know. And uh, a great example is the soft drinks industry levy, which still is one of the most uh, sort of heralded successes of the, of the public health world. And that absolutely couldn't have happened without someone like Jamie Oliver. And in fact, my PhD research looked at one case study of how a government strategy came about. And Jamie Oliver is an example of someone who was named repeatedly as being really key uh, in influencing and sort of raising the priority of, uh, particularly in this case, it was child health and childhood obesity, uh, even among the Prime Minister's team and himself at that time. So it just shows how important important these uh, types of figures, public facing figures can be in not only uh, sort of encouraging civic participation and public awareness, but also raising political attention and support as well. And if we could apply that, whether that's a coalition of people wanting any kind of policy change, if we could apply those techniques and strategies and the traits required for policy entrepreneurs uh, systematically, then perhaps we could get success on all of these different policy areas. So that's the aim. We've got to keep optimistic. <laughs> well, that's given me hope. If you'd like to find out more about the Food Foundation's signature lived experience campaigns, go to foodfoundation.org.uk and click on What We Do. And listen back to this podcast archive to hear more of the real stories of food insecurity right now in the sixth largest economy in the world. And if you have lived experience of food insecurity and want to get involved in advocacy, do get in touch with the Food Foundation. Just click on contact on the show notes. Thank you so much for listening.